Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Thank you for joining us once again. Yeah, I thought I'd say hello because I feel like I haven't said hello in ages. I don't know whether it's true or not. I think normally it's me that starts. This time I started the recording with blah, 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 blah. So we could have just done that and kept that in. I think people would have loved it. I'm sure they'd absolutely love it. (laughs) No. Would you like to say thank you to our Patreon supporters this week or shall I do it? Uh, I'll let you do it. I know how much you love it. So thank you very much to Sarah Savino. Ellie Morgan, Flaming June, which I think is an amazing name. Love Anton it. Anton Rossi, Joe Gray, Abby Lowbridge, Colin, Chloe Walker, Stuart Davidson and Sarah Newman. Thank you very much, everybody. Yeah, thank you to all of you. Thank you to all of our existing supporters too. If you would like to join these guys and jump on the bandwagon, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. We've got so much exciting stuff going on over there. So uh, do check it out. It only takes a couple of minutes to sign up. There's no minimum term. Uh, So yeah, do check it out. And talking about Patreon, this week I'm going to be revisiting a case that I covered in a bonus Patreon mini-sode without you, Mark, about a year and a bit ago. So I really hope that our Patreon listeners won't mind. I kind of feel like having a discussion about the case, really expanding on the information I gave back then will hopefully mean it doesn't feel like the same episode twice. And you know, sometimes you do a, do something and you think, do you know what, I could have done that better. I think this is going to do the case and the people involved just a bit more justice. I think also, some, what I would say, I mean, this is clearly a case that stayed with you for whatever reason, that you've wanted to revisit it as well, and for us to have the opportunity to discuss it, which we didn't before. So, yeah, I certainly um, feel that, and I think it's right to revisit it. Yeah, this is one of those cases. I just can't shake it. I quite often talk about it when people are talking about miscarriages of justice or true crime in general. So, yeah, I really wanted to discuss it again. Ghost written by friend of the show and my co-author Chris Clark, The Case of Stephen Downing, The Worst Miscarriage of Justice in British History, is an incredible book. It's written in Stephen's own words. And without giving too much away before I crack on with the case, he talks about his experiences in a very open and endearing manner, as well as a very honest way. I think from the title of the book, it's not going to be a surprise to anyone that Stephen was convicted of a crime he didn't commit. It was a murder. And something that really makes me sad in addition is the fact that the true killer has never been apprehended. So as well as Stephen being a victim, there's still a murder victim whose killer has never been caught. And what struck me most about Stephen when I read the book is how he's not bitter about what he went through. He's genuinely just happy to have the truth out there. Um, He's a friend of Chris's and he stayed with Chris and his wife Jean around the time of me recording the solo mini-sode. I keep saying mini-sode and it doesn't really quite sound right. Makes me cringe, it's like a mom word. It really is, I don't know what else to say, miniature episode. (laughs) Yeah, episode in brief. Episode in brief. And I asked Chris to kind of pass a message on to Stephen just saying how I was really impressed with, with that. He's genuinely not bitter, he just seems like a nice guy and so I, I hope he appreciated hearing that. I was just really blown away by the book and his story and we did gift a couple of Patreon supporters a copy of the book at this time so if anybody's interested after this week's show please do go and read it. 
Our case this week takes place in Bakewell, a pretty market town situated in mid-Derbyshire on the River Wye. Some of our listeners may know of the Bakewell Tart and this is where it originated. Is that where she lives, is it? The Bakewell Tart. Oh, Mark. Although, do you know what? That that nickname will be coming up later. Oh, I won't okay. be happy about it then either. Um, do you like a Bakewell Tart? No. I can't eat them because of the almonds. They're just, I can't bear. I can't bear any sort of nuts with a sweet <laughs> treat. It freaks me out. So, <laughs> no, they're vile. I remember this about at work. You wouldn't like do it. you? A coat, yeah. a, like chocolate coated peanut, is just weird to you, isn't it? Absolutely disgusting. But anywho, Bakewell is a popular tourist destination with pretty shops and pubs and a farmers market. So, if you think of a quintessential English town, you won't be far off picturing Bakewell. Our case begins on the 12th of September in 1973 with a 17-year-old Stephen Downing taking a lunch break at work. He had been off for a few days prior with a cold and his mum had told him to stay home a while longer to recover fully, but he wanted to get back to normal life and his job was something he really enjoyed. And it's one of those things where you think, God, how different his life would have been had he just stayed home this day. Yeah, because I don't, I, I can't really remember this case. I, I do vaguely, but I can't remember what was, what's going to happen. But do you obviously something really significant that wouldn't have happened if it stayed at home? Do you ever think about the things that maybe could have happened if? Do you know what I mean? On the flip yeah, side, it's you really know, I mad, wonder isn't what. It? Yeah, I wonder what we've managed to avoid happening mm-hmm. because of different things and decisions we've made. Sometimes you make a decision and a bad thing happens, but yeah. Or like you get home and then you hear of a crash. 10 minutes after and you think god if I'd left differently and absolutely described as naive and vulnerable Stephen talks in the book about how he was not great at school learning but instead he enjoyed making things and he really enjoyed baking he described himself in the book as somewhat backward and a little too trusting Stephen left school at 15 with no qualifications and the reading age of an 11 year old he couldn't hold down a job and by his own admission he was usually late every day Um, So at this point in his life, age 17, he had managed to get a job and he was really enjoying it. He worked maintaining the grounds at Bakewell Cemetery. It was really close to his house. He was employed by the council. He was happy in the role and he was good at what he did. For the most part, he was just left to his own devices and told to keep the cemetery looking smart and neat and just tidy up. And he loved it. And there's also a huge amount of satisfaction that you can derive from a job like that because you've got Mm -hmm, the free will to just go and and do it how you want to do it and keep it looking amazing. And yeah, I, I totally understand that. And he would have had bosses and people who were more superior than him, especially at 17. But really... As long as he's he's doing his job, he's not really going to have to answer to anybody. Within the cemetery grounds, there were two chapels. One was the consecrated one and the second was unconsecrated. And it was used as a storeroom as well as sort of the place where a lot of the workers would have their lunch breaks and sit and have a cup of tea and put their boots and that sort of thing. The day was a normal one up until Stephen's lunch break. He spotted a woman walking into the cemetery whilst he has had a cigarette outside the storeroom chapel and then he grabbed his empty drinks bottle and headed out. He was popping to a local shop hoping to return his empty bottle in exchange for a discount on a new bottle of fizzy drink. I think that's an idea that we should have carried on with by the way there. But the shop had closed for lunch so Stephen headed home. 
He stopped off to chat to a few people along the way and at home he left the bottle with his mum asking if she could go and get him the new one instead um, because obviously he was going to have to go back to work. He was on at the end of his lunch break. So he left some money on the table for his mum and she waved him off and he headed back to the cemetery. It was but nothing particularly out of the ordinary. The walks to and from the different places didn't take very long at all. And Stephen headed back to the cemetery to begin work again. But on arrival, he noticed something on a path near to a wall separating the cemetery from Catcliffe Woods, and he went to go and investigate. He came across a woman, naked from the waist down, her clothes scattered around her, her jumper pulled up with her breasts exposed, and she was led in a pool of blood. There was a bloodied pickaxe handle near to her. After rolling the woman over and after checking whether she was alive, Stephen was shocked when this woman began to make a real guttural noise and she sat up. He stumbled backwards and he fell onto a tombstone. And as if all of this wasn't shocking enough, Stephen then felt something sharp in his back and heard a gruff voice tell him not to turn around. He didn't. But when, as soon as he heard retreating footsteps, Stephen saw his chance and he rushed to the cemetery lodge and asked for the phone to call for the police. As Stephen was running to the workman's building, either the woman moved by herself or the perpetrator of the attack dragged her out of sight to a second location. So Stephen and his colleague rushed back to the initial place where Stephen had seen the woman, but of course she wasn't there. They looked around and they managed to find her and around the same time they saw two of their other colleagues. So the police and an ambulance had been called for, but in the time that passed, while the men were kind of stood watching and keeping guard of her... The woman got up again, but she stumbled and this time she hit her head on one of the tombstones. Isn't this absolutely terrifying? You just just wouldn't know what to do in this situation, would you? No, and I just, even when you said that she uh, sort of moved when he attempted to roll her over and was clearly still alive and he's thinking she's probably dead, I wasn't expecting that. And as if what's happened to her already isn't bad enough, she then stumbles backwards and thwacks her head on a tombstone which is going to do major damage. Yeah. And like, they're all like, Stephen kind of had just was wanting to check how was she, but she's then moving, either moving herself or someone's moved her. But even I imagine that, that freaky panic of she was right here. Yeah. Where is she now? Like, and she was debilitated. So how could she have yeah. possibly moved? And all of this is happening in a graveyard. Couldn't be a worse place for this, something like this to be happening. The men kind of stood back. Nobody was really able to help her. They're, you know, they're waiting for the ambulance. And the emergency team then arrived to support. Stephen, who was eager to help the police, gave them his statement and he told them all that had happened since he arrived back at the cemetery. The woman who'd been attacked was called Wendy Sewell. She was described in the press as an attractive 32-year-old housewife, which I couldn't resist putting in. It's just cringe, isn't it? And also to even put that she was attractive. I just yeah. don't think you Oh, get she's that a worthy now, victim. Wendy worked as a secretary at the Forestry Commission near to the cemetery. And she was the woman that Stephen had seen walking into the cemetery not long before when he'd been smoking before he headed out and went to the shops. It was her that she'd kind of been walking in. Wendy lost consciousness after the attack on the Wednesday and never regained it. She died on the Friday in hospital. The pathologist reported that she had been most violently assaulted, so he guessed with a pickaxe handle and with heavy boots. She had received at least seven crushing blows to her skull, resulting in damage to her brain during this frenzied attack. 
There was also evidence showing that she had been asphyxiated too with bruising to her neck and her Adam's apple and a bloody frothy mixture was in her lungs and airways. The police immediately focused their attention onto Stephen, telling him at the scene that they needed him to come with them to answer more questions at the station, and he was under the impression he was helping them, but they were basically convinced that they had their man. Now, I think it's easy to see why they'd be suspicious of this young man who was covered in Wendy's blood, and of course no one had witnessed the attack on Wendy, but the police didn't even think about investigating further. It didn't matter that Stephen explained he'd only just found her and that he hadn't been in the cemetery at the time Wendy was attacked. They didn't really follow up on the fact that he'd been spotted by numerous people on his lunch break. They also didn't really follow up on the reports of a man seen running from the cemetery at 1.20 by a dog walker, a man described as running like a bat out of hell with some blood on him. No, the police decided they had their man and they were sticking with this resolution. So we're going to take a quick break here. And we're going to hear from our second show sponsor. So here in our case began what we have seen before, disgustingly, numerous times. The police relentlessly questioned Stephen, who was getting increasingly tired. One shook him by the shoulder and told him not to fall asleep. Another even pulled his hair to keep him awake. They told him they would keep going until he confessed. He was refused access to a solicitor, a family member or a phone call. We have seen so many times the police pressuring someone to lie or change their story, and this is a lot for anyone to deal with, but don't forget Stephen had learning difficulties, so this would have been even more traumatic for him, and he was only 17 years old. Yeah, he's clearly vulnerable, isn't he? And Incredibly vulnerable. Refusing him access to a solicitor or a family member. He's a minor, technically, he's under the age of 18, he's not even allowed to make a phone call. And he's being essentially tortured. This is torture by preventing him from having any kind of rest and stopping him from falling asleep. That is a method of torture. So, yeah, this is just totally out of order. It's horrific. And after sort of seven or eight hours of this, Stephen decided to confess. He thought it would get them off his back for the night. He could get some sleep. And then in the morning, he'd tell them he lied, but he'd explain why he lied. I think that is exactly what I'd have done. It's what? It kind of makes sense in your, and also you're not even thinking rationally at this point, but it's what it makes sense in your yeah, brain. Yeah, I'd just be like, it? I'd be like, yeah, okay, I did it, but, and then, yeah, get some rest, wake up, and then say that, I, of course I didn't. I just said that because I needed to sleep. Now I'm equipped with the resources and the mental resilience to maybe kind of tackle this properly. Yeah. But sadly, because his reading and writing skills were so poor, Stephen agreed to sign a confession that was written for him by a police officer. He describes this as a mistake he will always rue. The confession was crafted by the police and Stephen had very little say in getting the truth into it and obviously he couldn't read it back and know what it said. He wearily signed it and was led to a cell. It was part. It was during this questioning as well, this relentless questioning, where it started off with did you attack her and then Wendy died on the Friday so then suddenly it was she's died, you're now being charged with murder and all of a sudden like everything kind of flipped and changed he was just he'd signed this confession saying he'd attacked her and now he's basically signed a confession saying he murdered her it was he just didn't know what was going on at this point and not having family or any sort of adult there to support him it's just horrendous and also it's um it's really traumatic, the experience that he's been through. So he's going to be in shock. He is, um, and he was at one point nearly attacked himself because 
you know, someone someone has approached him from behind and put yeah, some pickaxe exactly. probably to his back and said, like, move away. And he's not getting any help with that. And he's been goaded into confessing. So he wouldn't be in his right mind at all at this point. The evidence against Stephen at the trial, along with the confession, was that he had blood on his boots and his legs. But this was from where he'd knelt down to try and help the woman. There was no other evidence against him. And to be honest, his defence team sound like a pile of shite, in my opinion. They didn't even attempt to show that the confession had been forced out of Stephen. They barely stood up for him. They put very little forward as an alternative to Stephen's guilt for the jury. It was just another way that he was completely let down. I also think this is, and I might be wrong, I'm just speculating, but back then there was an old boys network and it could even be that the prosecution and the defence were in cahoots and working together almost to bring about this conviction. And that's why yeah, his defence was so poor. The trial lasted just three days and at the end the jury found Stephen unanimously guilty. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 10 years and then he would not be able to apply for parole unless he admitted to the crime which, of course, by this point, apart from the confession, which he immediately said was not true, he's been professing his innocence ever since. And yeah, so he didn't even have the option of applying for parole. Yeah. Stephen and his family wanted to appeal. And two months later, they seemed to have their opportunity. Local people were shocked at the conviction of Stephen. Many people supported him. They believed in his innocence. And a witness came forward saying she'd been in the area and she could corroborate some of the timings of the event, so therefore proving Stephen's innocence. So just to kind of give you, Mark, and our listeners the full kind of timings, they were as follows. Wendy had left the Forestry Commission at 12.40 and she was seen at about 12.45 walking into the cemetery. Stephen was spotted leaving the cemetery short, shortly afterwards and heading back to the cemetery at around 1.20. And during this was the gap where he'd popped to the shop and then home. People had seen him during that walk. He'd had no blood on his clothes when he was seen leaving the cemetery. Whilst walking around or on his return to the cemetery, so at no point did he have blood on him until after he'd discovered Wendy, and he sounded the alarm at 1.25. The new witness corroborated these timings and um, she'd said that she'd seen Wendy alive and well after Stephen had left the cemetery. Because she was 15 at the time, she hadn't come forward sooner because she was really scared, which you can understand. And she'd finally plucked up the courage to speak out because she knew she wasn't alone in believing in Stephen's innocence. But the court basically said she was an unreliable witness and it was not credible or secure enough to be used as an appeal. Can I just, I just want to check at this point then, because so Stephen's gone back into the cemetery at one twenty, and multiple people have seen him. He's not got blood on his clothes, so nothing's happened there. But then he sounds the alarm at one twenty-five. So I suppose there is a five minute gap, which is minimal, but technically from the police's perspective, enough time for him to have attacked Wendy, I guess. Well, I don't know about this sort of... I don't know whether the police think that actually he was there sooner because I don't think there was enough time. He had to get into the cemetery, find her, and then run and raise the alarm, which in total would have taken maybe four yeah. or five minutes. But I don't think there was enough time for him to have attacked her 
and raised the alarm, really. Um, and I think that the way the police were thinking of it was actually that he hadn't returned at one twenty, that he'd returned mm. at one o'clock or something like that. Which would have then, in their eyes, given him enough time to have yeah. carried out this attack. But then also, yeah, don't forget this other man was seen at one twenty running away, covered in blood. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. It, yeah I, I, I completely understand, yeah. And the witness who saw that man at one twenty, she had been walking her dog and she said something like the bus then turned up and the bus was due at this time and she she knew what the time was quite clearly. Yeah. So I think we all know what my opinion is. If you see something dodgy, you check what time it was. You make a note of it mentally. You always Pop do, it in just in notebook. case it becomes important. I haven't done Beth- that for Bethan's a while. Bethan's notebook but is fucking bursting. Just, just a reminder to you all. It's a mental note, but I do think, like, you do, don't you? If something weird happens, it no. sticks in your mind. Sometimes it does. I don't jot it in a <laughs> notebook, in a special I notebook. I don't have a special notebook. <laughs> I'll get you Mark. one. I'll get you one. <laughs> Thank you. I want it to be leather bound, please. So there's a lot in Stephen's book, because he was in prison for a long time, about the prison system at the time that he was incarcerated, late 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s. His book is eye-opening, to say the least. I'm not going to go into loads of detail, but I would definitely recommend you read his book. And again, it's one of those elements where he's very, very honest. At no point does he say he's perfect and he does nothing wrong when he's in prison or anything like that, but it's it's really said, you know, spoken about from a very open and honest place. Stephen's family and Bakewell locals continued to campaign for his innocence. And in 1994, his father made contact with a journalist called Don Hale. Don Hale took up the case. And finally, in 1997, the case was referred to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. So Don did an absolutely stellar job of investigating Wendy's murder. Not only did he uncover some very promising leads for suspects of Wendy's murder, he also found heaps of evidence to support Stephen's claims of innocence. And finally, they were able to have their day in court. Although, and again, we've seen this loads of times before, haven't we, with all the legal preparations, this wasn't until February 2001. God, this really dragged on, didn't it? Really dragged on. So in 1997, it was referred to the Review Commission and they didn't actually get to court until 2001. But finally, on the 7th of February 2001, Stephen was released on bail pending appeal and he walked out a free man for the first time since 1973. He had spent 27 years in prison. Uh, He had spent the entirety of his adult life in prison which is quite unique, isn't it? Because of the timing of this mm-hmm. at the age of 17, probably 18 when he went to prison. So that's really interesting that his entire adult life has been spent behind bars. The next year in 2002, the Court of Appeal overturned Downing's conviction, finding it to be unsafe. So during the second appeal, the Court of Appeal accepted many of the reasons that were put forward by Stephen's team for believing the conviction was unsafe. There were two main arguments put forward by the defence. So the first was that Stephen Downing's confession should not have been allowed to go before a jury. This confession which was a result of Stephen being questioned for eight hours, during which the police shook him and pulled his head to keep him awake. He wasn't formally cautioned that what he said might be used as evidence against him. He wasn't given a solicitor. Now, there's loads of reasons why this confession should not have been allowed to go before the jury. Yeah, even on some technicalities... 
it's not allowed, but actually the handling of it is so appalling and they've really forced it out of Steve and that's the worst part of it. When it's a technicality, yeah. you sort of think, well, yeah, I kind of get that it can't be brought before a jury, but really that is just a technicality. It still kind of stands, but this has the technicality element, but also this essentially torture. Yeah. And the prosecution in the first trial had also said that the blood on Stephen's clothes could only have been found on Wendy's attacker. But the defence argued that more recent knowledge of blood spatter patterns meant that the prosecution's claim was questionable. And there was loads of other evidence too. The police had stated that the pickaxe handle was one that Stephen had access to at work and that it was the sole murder weapon. Don managed to track it down and not only was it not one from the cemetery tool shed, it had a handprint in the blood on the handle and this didn't match Stephen. Moreover, the autopsy report hadn't been provided to the jury at the original trial and in this it showed that Wendy had not only been bludgeoned and kicked but she had also suffered asphyxiation. Her tights that she'd been wearing that morning were not found at the scene so that gave a suggestion for another potential murder weapon and also something that was missing had Stephen been found with her tights on him because he'd gone straight to the police station well no so it was a whole nother element that the police hadn't even looked into I find the whole blood splatter patterns and all the blood analysis so interesting because um, quite often people that say they found a body will have blood over them of course and they're saying they're innocent because they've just found the body. And I think we had Tracy Andrews, and I, I know I'm talking about an old case, and someone said recently in one of our reviews, Mark keeps talking about old cases, focus on this case, but I do find it fascinating when when um, there's sort of links almost. And I remember with Tracy Andrews, who killed her fiancé Lee Harvey, she said, I'm, I was covered in his blood because I went and cradled him after he'd been attacked. But the type of blood splatter on her jumper was from an arterial like it was arterial spray so it was all sprayed and they said well you must have literally been right in front of him as he got attacked within like a meter or something and you said you weren't so that's not the kind of blood spray that you would get when you comfort someone who's been attacked a few seconds earlier that's a blood spray you get when you are right there at the moment that someone is stabbed through an artery. And also to look at a, another old case that you've mentioned already as well, Barry George was This reviewer's convicted. going to love us. I know. <laughs> but Barry George was convicted because of some blood that was found within the inside of a pocket. I think it was gun residue. Was it? Oh, was it residue? It was gun residue. Oh, yeah. sorry. Well, I've I've misremembered that entirely. But, but equally, but, still, you know, advances in really, technology yeah. show that, yeah... It's fascinating, isn't it? And I always find it incredible when you watch TV programmes and they show that they know the direction of the stab wound and all of this just from how the blood then lands. It's incredible. Something I can kind of understand a little bit more is that the pathologist stated the blows from the pickaxe came from a right-handed assailant and Stephen was left-handed. One of those elements you just think, that's almost enough on its own. Don also received information from within the police force that numerous statements relating to the case had been fabricated. And then Stephen received compensation for his time spent wrongly in prison. So he'd had 27 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Now, whilst this was obviously a wonderful moment for Stephen, it didn't mean that he was seen as innocent. It simply meant he shouldn't have been convicted on that evidence and that the conviction was unsafe. 
A year later, Derbyshire police revealed the findings of their reinvestigation of the murder. They had interviewed 1,600 witnesses, and the reinvestigation apparently came in at an estimated cost of £500,000. After failing to link any other person with the murder, and also saying that they were not able to eliminate Stephen Downing as the suspect, they declared the case closed. So they've basically said that Stephen remains the prime suspect, but under the double jeopardy rule, he cannot be rearrested and charged with the same crime without new evidence. What? There's a palm print on the pickaxe handle that wasn't his in Wendy's blood. Like, what? And this was the same with Barry George, because mm-hmm. the police said, well, we are this. We are not reopening this murder investigation. We, uh, yeah, we're not, we have no lines of inquiry to pursue, basically saying that we believe that he is responsible and he's just managed to get away with this. So why would we go out and reinvestigate this when we know we had our man, but he's been released from prison and essentially found not guilty? It's so cruel when they do that. I think cruel is a really good word to describe it. It leaves that person in limbo in terms of their Mm -hmm. reputation. So Don Hale has suggested a number of suspects in his book, Town Without Pity. But according to Derbyshire Police, all of these have been cleared of any possibility of having murdered Wendy. So some of Don's suggested perpetrators and reasons sound viable. And I'm really shocked at how easily the police dismissed his ideas. And actually, the police then repeatedly threatened him because he refused to give up his sources. So he was um, threatened with... Um, obstructing the police because he refused to give up his sources but obviously being in the media that's something you really have to protect exactly so don also had anonymous threats made to him the office of the newspaper had a brick thrown through its window bomb threats were made and a lorry even attempted to run don's car off the road so him investigating this case put his own life at risk a lot So I thought I'd tell you some of the alternatives for the potential of Wendy's murderer, Mark, and see what your what your suggestion might be. So Don Hale kind of had to codename his um, suggestions. So they are Mr. Blue, who's also described in the case as the running man, Mr. Red and Mr. Orange. And obviously they've been given codenames because he can't prove their guilt. And so he could be charged with slander or libel if he accuses them, which is kind of valid. Mr. Blue was identified by the dog walker who had seen him. She even did take her information to the police, but she felt like she'd been disregarded and completely ignored. She'd seen the man while she was walking her dog, and then she saw a picture in a paper later and was like, that's the man I saw running that day, and went to the police and gave them his name. Ex-con Mr. Orange had been placed at the scene of the crime by a number of witnesses, And Mr. Red reportedly threatened people into giving him a false alibi. And Mr. Red and Mr. Orange were apparently ex-lovers of Wendy's. And a number of people had spoken to Don and said that Wendy had many lovers and had been nicknamed the Bakewell Tart. No, I really shouldn't (sighs) laugh because obviously this is awful. And she's lost her life in such tragic tragic circumstances. And now I feel awful for saying But it's exactly what you said earlier when you made that little joke. And that was such a, a word, tart, was kind of a word that really was used in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. But basically, if she was having affairs with lots of people and lots of men, potentially who were married, you know, the revelation could have ended the marriages or yeah. anything. For me, it's definitive because Mr. Blue, 
was the guy who had been seen running away with blood over him at one twenty. So how many other people were likely to have had blood over them at that kind of time and be running? It just adds up that it's going to be the person that had attacked Wendy. Well, he had blood on him, I think on his legs, and I don't think it was covered in blood as in okay. he'd really... Th- but it was unusual enough to notice, and he was behaving strangely. Apparently as well, a lot of the locals told Don that Wendy had a black notebook with information about people and dirt that she had on them. So potentially she'd been getting information about people and gathering that information and rubbed someone up the wrong way with it. Or could have been blackmailing people, I guess, with that information. Exactly. Mr. Red had also been questioned about a murder three years prior This was when Barbara Mayo was sexually assaulted, strangled and battered about the head and her partially clothed body had been found under a pile of leaves by a family out walking in an isolated wood just off the M1 motorway near Chesterfield in Derbyshire. He had been questioned about it, but he had... Well, nobody's ever been charged with her murder, but it was just fascinating that the two two cases are quite similar and he'd been questioned in that three years prior... There was some evidence from the pathology report that due to the ferocity of the attack, the kicks as well as the pickaxe blows, that there could have been two assailants. And obviously that is just conjecture, but there's always the chance that it wasn't just one of these as well. Mr. Orange was spotted at around the same time as the running man, so later identified as Mr. Blue. Um, Mr. Orange was spotted by other people and he was one of the locals who gave a witness statement saying that he'd passed Wendy on her walk just before one o'clock. So he was in the witness statements, the actual person, the man. Um, Obviously, his name isn't actually Mr. Orange, but other people then said he was behaving strangely afterwards. And Mr. Red had apparently rowed with Wendy the night before her attack and told someone he was going to go to Bakewell to speak to her the next day and then got someone to drive him into Bakewell, but threatened them and said, you don't tell anyone that I was ever anywhere near Bakewell. And he was the one that had apparently threatened other people to give him false alibis. So... I don't know, it's all conjecture, but it's all bits of this case that the police should have expanded on. Yeah, I mean, it sounds quite damning, some of this. And from what I've read, Bakewell was just a small place. Anyone out of the ordinary was noticed, people knew other people's business, and especially when you think this was 1973. So not only is it a small town feel anyway, you're going back to the 1970s, which still feels like only 30 years ago, doesn't it, when you say 1973. But you're going back to a time when small town was even smaller than it is now. So if you're really interested in reading more about what Don discovered, his book Murder in the Graveyard is incredibly fascinating. So I read that alongside Stephen's book as of course his is his personal side of being wrongly convicted. Don was looking more at Wendy's murder. Um, He obviously had to look into Wendy's murder to be able to get Stephen released. So you kind of get both elements you get Stephen's personal life story and then you also get what's going on around while Stephen's in prison what's being talked about in the local community Stephen was finally a free man and I guess that's the key thing for Stephen's story and the end of one of the worst miscarriages of justice in English legal history had made Stephen a celebrity in his small hometown people would stop him in the street to say hello smiles, handshakes, words of encouragement. Don Hale described it as 
when Stephen came home, he was treated almost like a cup final hero. But now in his mid-40s, Stephen had to work really hard to readjust to life outside of prison. And luckily, because too often my cases like this end with the person coming to a sad end almost immediately after getting out, but Stephen didn't. He got a job as a trainee chef in a local restaurant, so making use of the skills he'd learned in prison, but also he had a, a fascination with baking as a young man as well. And he said, I am just grateful it's all over. Hopefully I will be allowed to fit back into the community with my head held high and just try to live as life as normal a life as possible. So Stephen Downing was told that he could receive substantial compensation for the time he spent in prison, possibly making him a millionaire. And there's been speculation on how much he did or didn't get. But his friends and family have all said nothing could compensate him for losing the best years of his life. And, and still are, the police yeah. refused to admit that they had the wrong man. And that they really were the best years of his life. His life's never going to be able to be recovered from what happened to him. 27 years incarcerated yeah. and the feelings that that would invoke of just that real, yeah, just a huge sense of injustice. And what can you trust? You can't trust the authorities at all, ever, because they've put you behind bars for a crime you didn't commit, and it was obvious you didn't commit it. And you think about how your family will have changed, people will have passed away in the time that you're incarcerated, people will have had new children that you will potentially have never seen through their entire childhood. There's going to be so much that you've missed. Yeah, having friendships, relationships, a family of your own. Mm -hmm. yeah it's all gone and then he gets out of prison if his parents were still alive then they're aged and mm -hmm. he's missed out on their best years too and it's just for me it's so frustrating that the police still refuse to kind of admit that he wasn't responsible when he applied for a dbs check the police said that his murder conviction needed to be reported back because he was still a risk to the public like, what the fuck? They still thought it was him. Like, that's... Oh, it makes me so angry. The problem is, though, because he's not he's not been found not guilty of this... No. It's hanging over him. He's been found him. to have an unsafe conviction. Yeah. And he's been released from prison and the case has been closed. So, technically, yeah, I do understand it. I don't think it's fair, but I get it. I get the logic. So he languished in jail for 27 years, so the longest miscarriage in the United Kingdom legal history at that point, and yet he isn't bitter or twisted about it. However, he insists that he will work to clear his name until the end of his days. Wow, what an inspiration. I mean, he can teach mm -hmm. us a thing or two about forgiveness, can't he? So there we go. It just makes me sad because Wendy's murder hasn't been solved and Wendy hasn't had justice and really, yes, Stephen was released, but he also hasn't properly had justice either. No, no. And also, it's it's not Stephen's fault, but um, so much of this story is about Stephen Downing rather than Wendy. So um, that's sad in itself that she didn't get the justice she yeah. deserved or the sort of recognition of her being a, a victim of a horrible crime. We kind of just gloss over that to uh, focus on this miscarriage of justice. But a woman was brutally murdered. And it could be, it could be seen that while I've written this episode from the standpoint of I read Stephen's book and 
Stephen is a friend of a friend and all of that side of things. But it's not even that. If you look up this case, if you look up Stephen's name, you will see three or four lines about Wendy. If you look up Wendy's murder, you will see a small paragraph about what happened to her. Sometimes she's described as a secretary. A 32-year-old attractive secretary was murdered. And then it goes on to give you four paragraphs about how somebody had a major miscarriage of justice, which is obviously in itself horrific. But this case has become Stephen's case. And like you said, we, we need to remember that at the beginning of all of this, a woman lost her life and she has been resigned to rumour and speculation and not given the proper memories that she deserves and so it's so frustrating and um, a really really sad sad story well thank you for listening everybody and thank you for joining us once again we will see you next week for another case so yeah hang tight we'll see you then see you then bye